Well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31 and verse 1, which means we're not in Genesis 30 anymore. You're supposed to say, boo, we're so sad. But uh, that does mean we've, we've finished 60% of the book of Genesis. you believe that? So just, I mean, if the rapture doesn't happen soon... We'd love to finish the whole book. Amen. The title of our message this morning, and I really didn't plan it this way because I'm not smart enough to do this, but it fits perfectly with what Cody said, and it fits perfectly with the songs this morning. The title of our message this morning, and it must be the Lord because I put this together on a plane ride coming back from Tulsa, Oklahoma, a prophecy conference that I was involved in. The title of our message is God's Faithfulness. And as you're turning to Genesis 31, of course, I want to wish everyone a very happy Memorial Day. Freedom isn't free. Somebody's blood had to be spilled to give us the freedoms that we have. And Memorial Day is a special day where we acknowledge our fallen heroes. And yet there's an ultimate fallen hero who shed his blood for us as well to give us freedom. His name is Jesus Christ. So that would be our segue into the gospel at the conclusion of this this message. God, in the book of Genesis, is raising up a very special nation, the nation of Israel, Israel is a big deal because God has purpose to bless the world through Israel. Jesus will come into the world through Israel. And God is raising up that nation through the various patriarchs, the promises that God gave first came to Abraham and then later to Isaac. And now God is dealing with this man, Jacob. Jacob has left uh, the land of Canaan. It's not even called the land of Israel yet, which is that circle on the west close to the Mediterranean Sea. And he has journeyed up north to a place called Haran. It's also called Padan Aram. Um, another name for it is uh, Syria. And he has fled up into that region because he is being pursued by his murderous brother Esau, who Jacob has cheated in certain ways. And Jacob is up there in Haran probably for about somewhere between 14 to 20 years, which is a long time. There he comes under the authority of Laban, Uh, As the story is unfolded, Jacob, in the process, gets himself two wives. I don't recommend that necessarily, but this is how it worked out in Jacob's life. And from those two wives and bridesmaids come Jacob's dozen. He now has 11 children. Benjamin hasn't been born yet, and also he has one daughter named uh, Dinah. And through all of this, circumstances begin to change. And so we have what becomes Jacob's flight from Haran back to the land of Canaan. So we have Jacob's circumstances, verses 1 through 3. Jacob's discussion with his wives, verses 14 through 16. And then if we have time, I don't think we will. And everybody says, yeah, we know you won't have time 
We've been going to this church too long. Verses 17 through 21 will be Jacob's escape from Haran back to Canaan. But let's look at these circumstances here as we see the faithfulness of God in the life of this patriarch, Jacob. First of all, there's a change of relationship. You see that in verses 1 and 2. First of all, there's a change as information is given to Jacob from Laban's sons. Chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that are, all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. You remember from the prior chapter that Jacob was going to leave and Laban said, don't because I know I'm being blessed because you're here. So let's enter into a contractual agreement whereby all of the sort of off-colored, striped, speckled animals that come forth from the flock are yours. And Laban said, well, that's great. That's a great deal. That's one sided. That's going to favor me. Well, God providentially worked, and it ended up favoring Jacob. And Jacob now has become very, very wealthy. Laban was already wealthy, and now Jacob has become wealthy. You know, an interesting thing to think about is the attacks against our life come not so much when things are difficult. Attacks certainly can come at us from Satan then. But when things start to go well, there's basically two tests that we face as Christians. The test of adversity. Can we walk with God in adversity? And then there's another test that I think is more difficult. Can we walk with God in seasons of prosperity? I personally have found the second test much more difficult to pass. Because I know that when things seem to be working out well in my life from a human perspective, I don't trust the Lord the way I should. I'm not in my place of prayer before the Lord as consistently as I should. And here is Jacob getting ahead, and here comes the attack. It sometimes takes the form of jealousy. Paul the Apostle, um, as you study him in the book of Acts seems to be doing fairly well in his ministry until he is kicked out of synagogues and he begins to reap a great harvest amongst the Gentiles. This happens in city after city after city that Paul went. And you'll watch in almost every single circumstance, it's the jealousy of the unbelieving Jews that force Paul out of that particular city. So you might be enjoying a season in your life where, you know, you're sort of getting ahead. That's the time to really have your guard up. And this is the sort of thing that's happening here with Jacob. Uh, Laban is jealous of Jacob's wealth. Uh, Jacob's sons are jealous of Jacob's wealth. And so they say something here that's completely wrong. They say, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that are, all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Well, first of all, that's just flatly false. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 30 and verse 27, even Laban himself recognized that Laban was being blessed because of the presence of Jacob. Genesis 30 verse 27 says, but Laban said to him, if it now, if it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Well, now Laban is sort of in a state of deception because Jacob is prospering too much. So obviously Jacob is getting ahead because he stole the wealth from me, which is something he rejected and articulated completely differently in the prior chapter. That's what jealousy does to people. Jealousy and her twin sister, Envy. 
if we're succumbed by those sinful impulses and emotions, if we're overcome by those, basically what starts to happen is logical, rational thought begins to disappear. That's why there's so much in the Scripture warning us about those heartfelt sins. The last commandment of the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue is thou shalt not covet. Coveting is uh, different than the other of the Ten Commandments. The other of the Ten Commandments we do on the outside. Coveting is something that could take place in my heart without me physically doing anything. Covening is such where I realize that my heart has committed sins that my hands haven't gotten around to yet. Covening is desiring what rightfully belongs to somebody else, someone else's status, someone else's career, someone else's reputation, someone else's spouse, whatever the case may be. And I think it's listed last in the Ten Commandments because... In ancient Near Eastern lists, like the Ten Commandments, it's usually the first or the last commandment that opens the meaning. And the reason it's listed last is to show us that the Ten Commandments stand in judgment, not just on what we do, but the inward motivations of the heart. And if that's the standard, I sure need the grace of God. Amen. And so this is what is happening with Laban and his sons. Of course, what was really happening is God had actually blessed Laban in Haran because of Jacob's presence there, because God, all the way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, in the Abrahamic promises through which the nation of Israel will come, made certain unconditional promises. And in one of those promises, God said, In you, that's Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jacob's presence in Laban was leading to Laban's prosperity because of Genesis 12, verse 3. Laban apparently had recognized that earlier. That's why he's getting trying to get Jacob to stay. But jealousy and her twin sister envy have sort of taken root to the point where now Laban is not thinking logically. He's not thinking rationally. And he thinks Jacob is becoming wealthy because he did something deceitful, which, as we have studied carefully, Jacob has not done. So there is a change of relationship, and Jacob hears it first from Laban's sons. And then as you go down to verse 2, there's a change of relationship with Laban himself. Notice verse 2. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. One of the things that's difficult about living in this fallen world is relationships change. People change. People can treat you one way in one season of life, and their heart changes for some reason. And in another season of life, they, could, they treat you completely differently than the way they used to treat you. And it's so uh, rewarding in that type of environment, to have a God who says in Malachi 3, verse 6, I change not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. People's attitudes towards us can change. People's thoughts towards us can change. Relationships can change. But God never changes. And how important it is for us to have our lives rooted and grounded in a God that doesn't change. Everything has changed here for Jacob because Laban's attitude towards him has changed. The same exact thing will happen with Joseph. Joseph will become very prominent in Egypt, but when we get to the book of Exodus, if we ever get there, Exodus chapter 1 will say, Now a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now in this case, it's a different king, and he didn't know Joseph, and he had a completely different attitude toward Joseph. 
that the prior Pharaoh did not have, and so this is what led to the enslavement. Sometimes you can be on a job and personnel changes, your manager changes, and everything's different. Sometimes you could have the exact same manager, the exact same supervisor, the exact same boss, and things change. And yet, as you study the Bible, you learn that the greatest of the greats walk through this. And there's a blueprint for us to follow. We follow God, who does not change. And I can find my security in Him. And concerning His circumstances, not only has there been a change of relationship, but now there is a divine revelation coming from God to Jacob concerning a change of venue, a change of location. And you see that divine revelation given there in verse 3. You've got a command. And then you've got a promise. Notice uh, the command. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. First of all, notice this expression here. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob. Now, God has appeared to Jacob once before. 20 years ago, and now he is appearing to him again, 20 years later, second time around. And you might be thinking to yourself, boy, I wish I lived in patriarchal times. I wish I could hear the voice of God like that. I wish I could see a vision. Um, Are you kidding me? Do you realize how privileged we are having this book, a completed canon? I mean, Jacob couldn't look up the will of God in the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation or the book of Romans. And here we are sitting on top of this magnificent book, a completed canon of Scripture, 66 books that promise to equip us for all matters in faith and practice. If you want God to speak to you, get into this book. Get into environments where this book is being taught. Yeah, but pastor, I want to hear an audible voice. Okay, we'll read the Bible out loud. (laughs) It's it's a wonderful thing to hear the audible voice of the Lord. And so what does the audible voice of the Lord say to Jacob? It says, verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. In other words, leave... Haran up north, and you need to journey back to Canaan, the land of your fathers. Now, Canaan hasn't even been renamed yet Israel. In fact, the name Israel hasn't even shown up yet in the book of Genesis. But you'll notice that that land, which is one of the most disputed territories today in the world, According to God, as given in the Abrahamic covenant, belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says here, return to the land of your fathers. He doesn't say, return to the land of the Canaanites. Return to your land. It's the land of your fathers. I, it, it's the only piece of real estate on planet Earth that God has bequeathed in the Abrahamic covenant, and you'll see this in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, to a specific group of people. The physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophet Ezekiel, much later on in biblical history, will give the following prophecy. Ezekiel 36, verse 24, God says, For I will take you, that's Israel, from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into someone else's land. Whoops, doesn't say that. Bring you into your own land. And so it's a, it's a very different way to look at that situation in the Middle East because everybody is claiming that Israel really doesn't belong there. And yet your Bible over and over again says that this is the land of Israel, given in the Abrahamic covenant to the physical descendants 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So return to your land, return to the land of your fathers. And then God, verse 2, makes a promise. And one of the things I love about God is He doesn't just tell us to do something without telling us the resources that we have to accomplish what He wants us to accomplish. It's it's there in verse 3. And I will be with you. Yeah, but but Lord, I've been comfortable here in, in Haran. I've gotten ahead here in Haran. And now I'm, I'm leaving everything. And I've got to talk my two wives and uh, 11 sons and one daughter who, who don't know anything about Canaan. All they know is Haran. I've got to talk them into going with me. How am I going to do that? God says, don't worry about it. I'm with you. See, God may have put in front of you some sort of task that seems, um, from the human perspective, insurmountable. And you're wondering, how in the world am I going to pull this off? And a lot of times God doesn't tell us how. He just tells us the what. He says, do it. And we're worried about the how. And God says, don't worry about it. I've got that covered. I'm going to be with you. And so I hope you know as a Christian that wherever you go, whatever God has you doing, God is with you. Proverbs 18 verse 24 says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin. Yeah, but I've got 5,000 friends on my Facebook page. Well, hmm. Bible says a man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, 24. Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, we just heard Cody reference the Great Commission earlier. Go and make disciples of all nations. How do you pull something like that off? Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How are we going to do it, Lord? The Lord says, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. I mean, you have my presence. What else do you need? You don't really have to know the how. Just focus on the what. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 5, God says, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Interesting, uh, the ministry, the missionary presentation, they're focusing on the book of Daniel. One of the chapters that they're going to get to in their study is Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar took the Hebrew youths and put them into the fiery furnace. Their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hebrew names, I think, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar changed their names. Because when you name something in Scripture, you're demonstrating your authority over the object renamed. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is saying to those Hebrew youths, I own you. And the rest of the book of Daniel is showing Nebuchadnezzar, you don't own anything. God has been sovereign this whole time. You can give him whatever name you want. God is with those Hebrew youths. And in Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was astounded. And he stood up in haste and said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And remember, the oven was so hot that the very men that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace were killed on the spot. These three men should have been incinerated. Nebuchadnezzar says, he said, look, I see four men loosed. 
and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods, the angel of the Lord. Well, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, if we ever get to verse 12, I'll tell you who the angel of the Lord is. The Bible says clearly who the angel of the Lord is. You don't have to to guess as to who the angel of the Lord is. But it's a remarkable passage that God is with us no matter what happens to us. And the Hebrew youth say, you know what, God can rescue us and maybe he won't. So there's no guarantee that we're going to survive the fire. But I do know this, God is going to be with us in that fire. In this case, they were miraculously, miraculously spared. The presence of the Lord. Jesus said this in the upper room, John 14, 16 and 17, concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, and this ministry we think started on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, beginning of the church age. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Helper is the paraclete in Greek, the one who comes alongside to assist the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not know him, see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you for 24 hours. Doesn't say that. He will be in you as you go down to verse 18 or verse 16 forever. One of the great Promises of the Bible is once you trust Christ as your Savior, God, the third member of the Trinity, God the Spirit, permanently resides inside of you forever. You couldn't lose God if you wanted to. Now you can, we can quench His presence, we can resist Him, but He's with you forever. And no matter what you're walking through today, God is with you in the midst of that because of this promise. The, the, the presence of God. I mean, if you have that going for you, what else do you really need? I mean, you don't have to know the, the how, the why. You just have to know the what. So Jacob is told to leave where he's at when his whole family knew nothing but Haran. He came into Haran, as we have studied, as a single man. Now he's got two wives, 11 kids, (laughs) one daughter. He's got this impossible task of talking to his two wives and family into leaving everything they know, going back to Canaan. Um, He probably had so many question marks in his mind. How are they going to be convinced And God doesn't give him any information other than I'm with you. That's all you need, all you need to know. So this leads to now Jacob's discussion with his wives. His circumstances are different. Laban and his sons have become hostile to Jacob through uh, jealousy, really. Their minds are not thinking clearly. And God has given him a direct word. And so now he has to talk his two wives into this. Leah and Rachel. So he summons his wives and you see that there in verse four. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. Rachel and Leah, we think were probably in the tent or tents. And he says, come on out here. Both of you, I want to talk to you in the field, meaning it's a private Probably a somewhat frank uh, discussion. And he has a really hard job (laughs) because, as I mentioned before, Rachel and Leah knew nothing about Canaan. Their whole lives were spent in Haran. And so now, verses 5 to 13, you see Jacob presenting his case to his family, starting with his two wives. Notice what he says there in verse 5. He starts talking about Laban's treachery, how Laban has mistreated him. 
And um, notice, if you will, verses 5 through 9. Jacob makes reference to Laban's change of attitude. Verse 5, And said to them, two wives, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly towards me as formerly. In other words, he's become hostile to me. He's become jealous towards me. But look at the second half of verse 5. But the God of my father has been with me. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day how people treat you if God is with you. Because if God is with you, He's going to make the situation right in His way and His timing and in His providence. And so we have to, we have to learn as Christians to keep entrusting our circumstances to God. That's what Jesus did, by the way, as He was hanging on the cross. First Peter, I believe it's chapter two, talks about it. How He was hanging on the cross in the midst of total unfair treatment. You know, if we think we've been untreated unfairly, look at what they did to Jesus. And what First Peter says is he kept entrusting himself over and over again. An active verb. He kept entrusting himself. He kept entrusting his circumstances to a faithful creator. These people that are abusing me are not faithful, but God is. And I'm going to keep entrusting over and over again my circumstances to God the Father, a faithful creator. That's how we function in the midst of unfair treatment. Laban's attitude towards me is different, but you know what? At the end of the day, the God of my Father has been with me. He... In this talk to his wives, he makes reference to the fact of his diligence. I mean, Jacob has been diligent in the midst of unfair treatment. And you see that there in verse 6 as he's speaking to his wives. You know that I have served your father, that would be Laban, with all my strength. You know, it's one thing being faithful to God when you're dealing with people that are treating you fairly. It's a completely different matter when you remain faithful to God in the midst of unfair treatment. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 15 talks about suffering. But it says, when you suffer, First Peter 4 verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. In other words, suffering as a Christian is normal, but some of the times we can bring suffering on ourselves through bad choices. I mean, if we're suffering as Christians, let it not be because of sinful decisions on our part. Let it be because we're faithful to God in the midst of totally unfair circumstances. And that was Jacob wasn't being treated right, wasn't being treated fairly. The deal that he entered into was designed to advance Laban and subtract from Jacob. But God kept intervening, as we're going to see. And Jacob continued to prosper. And there is Jacob just hanging in there this whole time. Faithful to the calling of God, really doing menial work in the midst of unfair circumstances. I do have to admit, this is my really my first time teaching the book of Genesis like this. I thought I understood a little bit about Jacob. I, I really have figured out I understood almost nothing about him before I started studying this. I had always thought Jacob was the cheat, sort of the rip-off artist, <laughs> and he is that <laughs> earlier. But I, I'm seeing a man here of just unflinching character because being faithful in the midst of prosperity is easy it's entirely different subject matter when you're faithful to god in the midst of adversity and yet as we're going to see if we get to verse 12 i'm hoping we will that god is totally aware 
of Jacob being treated unfairly. It's not like this whole mistreatment by Laban and his sons went unnoticed by God. It, it, it did not. Just like the circumstances in your life, whatever they are, they're not unnoticed by God. God sees. God is aware. God is taking an account, if you will, of unfair treatment to his to his children. Jacob here, as he's speaking to his wives, speaking of Laban's dishonesty, he makes a few points about how Laban has been dishonest. First of all, Laban has changed his wages over and over again. Genesis chapter 31 and verse 7, it says, Yet your father, speaking to his two wives, has cheated me and changed my wages not once, not twice, but ten times. Oh, I told you you were making X amount per hour. Did I, did I say that? What I really meant is you're making this amount an hour, but far less. In other words, Laban over and over again was violating the original contract that he entered into with Jacob. You remember back in Genesis 30, verse 28, Laban said this to Jacob, Name your wages and I will give it to you. What a deal, right? Name your wages. Well, it doesn't really have a lot of value if the person paying you your wages keeps changing <laughs> what they originally said uh, they would pay you. I mean, does God really take notice of when people take advantage of us financially? Yes, he does. The book of James, chapter 5 and verse 4. James, the Lord's half-brother, writes, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, speaking to the rich oppressors. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you. Cries out against me. You, you, you rich people. You, you people that have become wealthy through, through oppression. You know, you, you promised a certain wage and you haven't paid. I mean, they, they did work for you, but you come up with some excuse as to why they can't be paid. God says, I take notice, I take notice of that. In fact, the very act itself is crying out against you wealthy people. Of course, there's nothing wrong with wealth. The problem is becoming wealthy through cheating through sliding of hand to others. God says in James chapter 5 and verse 4, the outcry of those who did harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. All of these workers are grumbling and they are complaining, rightfully so, and guess what God says, I know about it. One of the names of God, as we'll see, is El Roy, the God who sees. He sees the oppression. And as you look at the second part of verse 7, it says something very interesting. Jacob speaking to his wives. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, I love that expression, (laughs) However, God did not allow him to hurt me. In other words, it's almost like God put a sort of a a leash, I guess we could say, on Laban. You can go so far in your deception and your dishonesty, but you can't cross this red line over here. You can't permanently hurt him. Kind of reminds me of the book of Job when God told Satan, who had requested of God, the only reason Job serves you, God, is you bless his life. You put a hedge of protection around his life. And God says to Satan, okay, have your way. I'm going to lower the hedge of protection. But you can't kill him. You can wreak all kinds of havoc in his life, but here's the red line you can't cross. 
I kind of get that express uh, that idea there when I look at the second part of verse uh, seven. Laban was doing all kinds of things to Jacob, and yet he could only go so far. See, when we're oppressed, we just have a tendency to focus on the unfairness of it all. But in the mind of God, and as we think about these things, we ought to also focus on the fact that the oppressor is limited by God in what he can do. And God has allowed the oppression into our lives because apparently he has some greater purpose other than our immediate comfort. I hope we're to the point as Christians where we understand that. There are a lot of things that God wants to achieve in our lives that take a greater priority than our immediate comfort level. All kinds of things God is doing. One one of the things God is doing here in Jacob's life is he's trying to get him out of Haran and back into Canaan, and it's hard to do that if everything is hunky-dory in Haran. So there is, obviously through this oppression, there, there was some greater purpose at work that Jacob, until he received this divine revelation that you're leaving Haran and you're going back to Canaan, probably didn't know anything about. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17 It says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. Well, that's nice, Pastor. That's just for Israel, right? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. If I'm reading that right, that's a universal principle. No weapon formed against you can prosper. In other words, it might look like it's prospering, but God only allows it to go so far. And when it comes into our lives looking like it's prospering, it's obviously to achieve some purpose higher than our immediate comfort. So he has changed my wages ten times, yet God looked out for me providentially. Look at verse 8. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. In other words, no matter how badly Jacob was cheated by Laban, God kept moving his hand on Jacob's behalf behind the scenes. And prospering Jacob in the very areas where Laban was lying to him and and cheating from him and stealing from him. I mean, how else does a man become wealthy in the midst of a circumstance where someone changes your wages ten times? How, How does someone become wealthy in those circumstances? It's the hand of God. God looking out for for Jacob. For each change of wage Laban forced on Jacob, God worked accordingly to the terms of the original agreement. And the result was Jacob's wealth. Jacob became wealthy through all of this. See, (laughs) when you understand this background, God just took away from Jacob bragging rights. Hey, let's go on TV. You guys want to be wealthy too? Come, come, come to my course. Buy my book. Here are my tips to success. Here's how I pulled it off. Have you noticed that when God works, He does it in such a way that He removes from us the ability to brag? Because there's no way this blessing could have happened without the hand of God. It's from a human perspective totally impossible but God. Some of the greatest blessings that have ever occurred in my life, I have no um, authority or ability to run around and tell people, if you apply these five steps, you can be blessed too. Because they are blessings that are unilateral, unconditional, and totally by grace. As the Apostle Paul says, if if you received it by grace, 
Why do you boast? As if you haven't received it by grace. I mean, this principle goes right down to your spiritual gifting. Spiritual gifts are given to the body of Christ. There are people in the body of Christ, most, all, I would say, that have a talent of some kind. So do we strut around proud as a peacock because of this talent that we have? Maybe you have a talent with music or literature or Bible translation or videography, if that's even a word, um, teaching. What's there to boast about if God is the one that gave you that spiritual gift? See, God, God works in such a way that boasting is eliminated. Jacob had nothing to boast about. That's, that's salvation too, right? For we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's how God operates. The result, though, um, is given there in verse 9. Thus God has taken away your, speaking to his wives, your father's livestock and given them to me. Jacob became wealthy, but here's the point. He didn't become wealthy by dishonest gain. He became wealthy because God orchestrated circumstances that way on the part of Jacob because of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Jacob can't boast in his wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. It says, In the wilderness he fed you manna with your fathers, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you might say in your heart, My power... And the strength of my hand made this wealth. But you shall remember that the Lord, your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant. That's what's happening here in Genesis 31. That he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, as it is this day. Look, you're going to go into the land of Canaan and you're going to become phenomenally wealthy. And as your wealth accumulates every day of your life, you got to say to yourself, it is not my strength and my power that gave me this wealth. It's the covenantal promise of God. Because if you ever get to a point where you think it's you doing it, As the Bible says to the children of Israel, the land is going to vomit you out. Yeah, but pastor, I I, I made some money and I worked really hard at it. Well, who gave you your health so you could work hard at it? Who, Who put you in the right situation so that you could enjoy opportunities? You know, Memorial Day. Do you realize that if you're born in the United States compared to the rest of the world, economically, you're like sitting on the winning lottery ticket? All you got to do is cash it in. All you got to do is basically play by some polite rules of decent society. And, you know, if you can't if you can't succeed in the United States of America, it's because you're working really hard not to succeed. I mean, America is just the greatest place ever, in my humble opinion. In fact, it's so great that the rest of the world is trying to get in here. That's why we have a borders crisis. The rest of the world understands there are privileges that come to United States citizens that don't exist in other parts of the world. Now, who, who, how, who, how did you decide to be an American? I mean, I was born into this country in 1966. I don't recall making some deal with God or some decision. Hey, I want to be an American. God providentially dropped me into this country. He gave me a great family background. He put me in circumstances where I could hear the gospel and respond to it. He gave me talents and abilities, none of them earned. So why would I... 
go around boasting about myself. Do you realize that the book of Daniel says, as, as God is confronting Belshazzar, the last reigning king of Neo-Babylonia, God says to Belshazzar in Daniel 5, you haven't glorified me, even though your next breath is in my hands. I'm the one who is controlling the breathing, exhaling, inhaling process. I'm the one who's keeping your heart moving so that you can have your next movement in life. And even though I'm doing all of these things for you, you have not taken the time to glorify me. Jacob here glorifies God. God has taken away your father's livestock and given to me. That's the result. And now comes a uh, divine revelation. We've already had a little bit of that in verse 3. Now we're getting more of it. First you see a, you see a vision. Verse 10, it came about at that time when the the flock or flocks were mating. So the timing of this is when the flocks normally conceived. He goes on in verse 10 and he says that I lifted my eyes and I saw in a dream, behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled and spotted. All the he goats were mating with the females in the vision And those goats had three characteristics. They were either the off-colored or striped or speckled. And what God is saying is this, regardless of how they, the animals, appeared on the outside, they had the genes of the three characteristics that would enrich Jacob. They looked one way on the outside, but genetically they were different. And as they mated, it was benefiting Jacob according to the original contract. And who is the one that is controlling the genetics of all of this? It's God. And as you go down to verses 11 and 12, you see the interpretation. And this is very common in the Bible. You'll see a vision followed by an interpretation. So you don't have to use your sanctified imagination to determine what the vision means. You have a divine calling. Verse 11. There it is. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream. Well, who's the angel of the Lord? Look at verse 13. This is the angel speaking. Angel of the Lord. I am the, what's the next word? The God of Bethel. The angel of the Lord is claiming to be God. Who is this angel of the Lord? Some would call it a theophany. Some would call it a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's Jesus before the manger. In fact, you might be asking, well, do you have a good book I could read on this? Yes, I do. It's by Ron Rhodes. It's called Jesus Before the Manger. Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. He gives every single occurrence in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up before you even get to the New Testament. Through the angel of the Lord. I mean, there's obvious manifestations of the angel of the Lord that have to be God. One of them is in Joshua 5, 13 through 16, where people worship the angel of the Lord. Now, a true angel won't receive worship. John, at the end of the book of Revelation, tried to worship the angel that gave him the vision. Once in chapter 19, and I think a second time in chapter 22, and both times the angel says, knock it off, buddy. Worship God. But there in Joshua 5, the angel never says, knock it off. 
the angel receives the worship, meaning that the angel of the Lord, in many circumstances, has to be none other than Jesus Christ himself, the second member of the Godhead. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. So he calls out to Jacob, Jacob answers, and now you have the interpretation given in verse 12. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. In other words, I have organized things where although the from the human perspective, it looks like you're on the losing side, you're actually on the winning side. My sovereignty has done that. And that's a wonderful thing about walking with the Lord, is you think you're losing. But in reality, you're winning. Because God is with you. And even when it, when it looks like you're losing, you're actually winning. Because God is using James 1, 2 through 4, trials and tribulations to bring us to the next level of spiritual maturity. I mean, there's a reason that we're called, Romans 8, victors in Christ, overcomers. Do you realize that in Romans 8, you're not even called an overcomer? The Greek is a super overcomer. Uh, Nikao, where you get the word overcomer, that's where we get the word Nike, the, the shoe company. And I always laced up those thinking I was going to jump like Michael Jordan didn't. Because I wasn't wearing Air Jordans. It didn't work out in my case. But that's where Nike comes from. Victor. You're not just a victor in Jesus. You're a super victor. An uber victor. Uh, a super overcomer. And then you look at the last part of verse 12. Now watch this very carefully. God says, For I have seen... All that Laban is doing to you and has done to you. One of the names of God is El Roy, the God who sees. And as we're moving through the book of Genesis, you have to pay attention to God's titles. Genesis 1, he's called Elohim, the creator, referring to his power. Genesis 2, he's called Yahweh which is speaking of his relational quality, which would make sense in Genesis 2, which is speaking of God's relationship to man in the garden. Genesis 22, he's called Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Remember the ram caught in the thicket? God shall provide himself a... Sacrifice, Genesis 21:33. he's called El Olam, meaning the everlasting God. There never was a time in which he was not. And in other passages, he's called El Roy. You are the God who sees. God saw what was happening to Jacob. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 14 says God sees the laborer being abused by the oppressor. He says you shall give him his wages, speaking to the employer in relation to the laborer. You shall give him his wages on this day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it. So that he, that's the laborer, will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes a sin to you. You better not, Israelis, Christians, you better not abuse people that are under your authority. You better not change their wages ten times. You better not say, I'm going to pay you and then not pay if you have the means to pay. Because that laborer might cry out to the Lord. And if that laborer cries out to the Lord, God says, I'm going to move. I'm going to act because I see, I see uh, what is happening. 
It's kind of interesting, and I'll finish with this. We're not going to make it quite through verse 13. Just through verse 12. But it is kind of interesting how God treated Laban differently depending on how Laban was treating Jacob. Genesis 12, verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you. I mean, as as long as Laban was respecting Jacob, Laban was prosperous. But Genesis 12, verse 3 says, The one who curses you, I will curse. How literal is that? Well, ask yourself this. Why did God drown the Egyptians? I mean, why not in the book of Exodus, in the Red Sea, why drown them? God could have killed the Egyptians any way he wanted. The answer is in Exodus 1, where the Egyptians were drowning God's people. Remember the infants in the Nile. Why did God, in the tenth plague, kill all of the firstborn all over Egypt? Why did God do that? You'll find the answer in Exodus 4, verse 22, where Israel is called God's firstborn. You abuse my firstborn, I'm coming after your firstborn. How exactly was Haman killed in the book of Esther on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai? You see how literal this is? Why is it that Laban is materially blessed earlier on in this historical account because Laban was a blessing to Jacob? Why is it now that Laban feels that everything's been stolen from him? Because he was stealing from Jacob. The the, the truth of the matter is, is Genesis 12 verse 3 stuff this in-kind principle that God established in the Abrahamic covenant is very, very serious. I do not see a statute of limitations on this. Because a lot of people say, ah, just Old Testament stuff, who cares? This is a universal principle. God has promised to bless the world through Israel. So you better be careful about how you treat Israel. Sort of something that sends shivers up my spine as I see the late great United States of America changing its policies towards Israel just like Laban changed his attitude toward Jacob. And then we'll pick it up next time with the command to return to Canaan. Of course, Memorial Day is about the shed blood of people that were innocent so that we can have freedom. The Bible says, Greater love is no man than this, than he who is willing to lay down his life shed his own blood, in other words, for his friends. Do you see the parallel there in the Gospel? Jesus, an innocent human being, laid down his life with his own blood. Why? To give us freedom. Freedom from what? The tyranny of sin. The oppression of sin. The truth of the matter is every single human being born into this world is born into this world with the judgment of God hanging over their head. Jesus came into the world to fix that problem. To shed his blood for us so that we could be free from sin's tyranny and yoke and the final destination that sin would take us to. It's a problem that we have that we can't fix. But Jesus stepped out of eternity into time to fix the problem, which he did. Because his final words on the cross were, it is 
finished. And what He asks us to do to receive this is to receive it as a gift. If you're trying to earn it, you can't have it. You receive it as a gift or you can't have it. It's the greatest thing you could ever have, by the way. But you can't earn it. That's God's condition. Because if you earned it, you'd get a brag about it. And God has orchestrated things where no one gets the glory but Him. And you receive a gift from the Lord by believing. Romans 4, 4 and 5 in the one that He has sent. And so on this Memorial Day Sunday, I would just encourage everyone within the sound of my voice, listening online, listening or watching in the building, watching or listening archives after the fact, to put their trust, not in their own good works, but in the good work Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to receive, raise a hand to receive, join a church to receive, Give money to receive. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord places you under conviction. And you respond to it by receiving by faith, which means trust in the gift that he has given. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this wonderful Sunday. The shed blood that was spilled to give us freedom. And ultimately, we look to the shed blood of your son who gave us freedom from the tyranny of sin. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.